Welcome back to the program. We're going to spend some time talking about a story of greed gone too far, a story that is truly an American tragedy for our time. We're going to talk about it with my guest, Joe McGinnis. He is the author of 10 previous books, including the best-selling The Selling of the President, as well as Going to Extreme, Fatal Vision, Blind Faith, and Cruel Doubt. His newest book, just published by Simon & Schuster, is Never Enough. It is my pleasure to have him here. Joe McGinnis, thanks so much for joining us. Well, good morning, Jeff. Thank you very much for having me. It's nice to talk to you. It's a delight to have you here. First of all, tell us about Andrew and Robert Cassell. Who were they, and how did you first learn about them? Well, Andrew and Robert uh, were uh, brothers who grew up in uh, suburban New York City on the New Jersey side of the Hudson River. And uh, each grew up determined to uh, make as much money as they could possibly make in life. The the value system they were raised with uh, taught them that what matters in life is what you own. You can define yourself uh, by how much you make and what you have. And Robert set about this uh, by going into the, the world of finance. He became an investment banker, uh, worked for Lazard Frayers, then Goldman Sachs, which sent him to Hong Kong in uh, the late 1990s, and then for Merrill Lynch. His brother Andrew uh, stayed in the New York area and began to uh, build a real estate empire. Um, they both got fabulously wealthy uh, in their late 30s, early 40s. Robert did it honestly, legally, within the law, in investment banking, whatever else you might think of investment banking. He didn't break any laws. Uh, Whereas Andrew uh, broke a lot of laws, and uh, he was finally arrested for fraud and embezzlement. uh, And he was, at the time, he was murdered in the basement of his own home in Greenwich, Connecticut, which was in April of 2006. He was about to go off for eight to ten years in federal prison. Robert was murdered by his wife in Hong Kong in November of 2003 after she had begun an affair with a TV repairman who came to their vacation house in Vermont while Robert was in Hong Kong. She went back to Hong Kong and eventually, in a matter of months, murdered Robert, hoping that she would then have the freedom to pursue a new life with the uh, the TV repairman who lived <laughs> in a trailer uh, trailer park in uh, New Hampshire. Talk about the story of Robert and his wife and how that relationship devolved. Well, they met um, as fairly typical New Yorkers, uh, in their early 20s, they actually met at a club med in the Caribbean. Hmm. And uh, Nancy Kissel had uh, grown up in uh, the Berkeley area, actually, and had come east uh, to Parsons School of Design. She dropped out after a year and began a series of jobs as a waitress in uh, some of the trendier restaurants in lower Manhattan. Um, they married, and they set about living their normal life. They had children, and uh, they uh, moved up the economic ladder very quickly. Robert was very talented at the uh, the form of investment banking that he practiced, which was something called distressed debt investing, where Mm -hmm. you you move into very troubled companies and uh, take over and turn them around and uh, make fabulous profits. He was so good that Goldman Sachs uh, sent him to Hong Kong in 1997, 
And I think that's really where the uh, the troubles began. Nancy had a, a lot of difficulty adjusting to life in Hong Kong. Uh, on the surface, it was wonderful. They lived in a, a fabulous apartment complex surrounded by other expatriates. They belonged to country clubs. They had the Mercedes and the Porsche. They had all the uh, accoutrements. Uh, Robert was working 100 hours a week, uh, which is not unusual in that field at that time in that area. And uh, Nancy had a lot of time on her hands. She didn't like Chinese people. She thought that uh, there, was, there were far too many Chinese in Hong Kong. Hong Kong would have been fine for her, except for the 95% of the population that was Chinese. Uh, so as the years passed, uh, she grew more and more distant from Robert and uh, more and more uh, feeling a sense of isolation cut off from her friends back in the United States. She would visit for the summers, but uh, I think life in Hong Kong began to take its toll. Robert was, meanwhile, so focused on earning more. This is where the title of the book right. came from, Never Enough. He said to his father-in-law once when his father-in-law said, well, Rob, just, you know, just how much will be enough? He said, there's no such thing as enough. You can never have enough. And this was what he and his brother both believed, and they lived by that credo. And at least to some degree, it contributed to their the, the bizarre coincidence of the two of them being murdered within three years of each other. For Robert, was not having enough about the money, or was it about the winning, about the game? I think probably both, because he famously said uh, when he was working at Lazard Frères that uh, what good does it do me to make $10 million a year if the guy down the hall is making twenty? He never wanted to finish anywhere but first, and so... Competing in investment banking to finish first meant to make more money than anyone else in the field. This was what drove him, and uh, he single-mindedly pursued this. Um, and this is what contributed to a large degree to, I think, his wife's alienation. She loved to spend his money. She was great with the credit cards. She knew how to shop, and she there was nothing she'd rather do than shop, whether it be on Madison Avenue in New York or in the central glitzy central district of Hong Kong. Uh, however, uh, beneath that, there was an emptiness. And there could, how could there not be an emptiness? These people didn't care about anything. They didn't care about social issues. They didn't care about politics. They didn't care about anything in the world around them that they couldn't buy. What was her, what was Nancy's relationship to the other expatriate American wives in Hong Kong? Well, most of their children, uh, the children attend the same school uh, for the most part, the Hong Kong International School. And that's where, between their and the, um, the, the synagogue where they uh, practiced their faith, that's where they made most of their acquaintances. Um, and at the, uh, the Aberdeen Marina Club, the, the country club that the expatriates belonged to there. So Nancy um, was considered kind of headstrong, uh, kind of a difficult person. She could be very charming. She had a bundle of energy when she wanted to apply it to something. She got the job done. But Basically, with Nancy, it was her way or the highway. She did not uh, brook any sort of disagreement. If you, if you didn't agree with her, if you didn't let her control the situation, she simply cut you out of her life. And that left her with an ever-diminishing circle of acquaintances. Right. Talk about the relationship between her and, and her husband and what he knew or understood about her growing dissatisfaction in Hong Kong. Well, he... By the, by the spring of 2003, 
he knew enough that he the, the 2003 was the uh, the year that the SARS epidemic uh, hit Hong Kong and also other parts of the world, but devastated Hong Kong. To escape from that, she and the three children left Hong Kong and went to the vacation house in Vermont, and she actually enrolled the children, those of school age, in the schools up there. But he was definitely concerned. He didn't know what she was up to. He came for a visit in the spring of 2007, and he installed a, a spyware program on her computer. This would allow him, when he was back in Hong Kong, to read every email she sent and received. And it was through these emails that he first discovered that she was having a relationship with the guy he had hired to put in their home theater system. And uh, this, of course, caused him great distress. He insisted that she stop the affair. She had no intention of stopping the affair. Uh, her choice in the end was, if I have to choose between the two men, I'm choosing my new repairman lover and getting rid of my husband. Why did she murder him instead of going through divorce? She was afraid of how vindictive he would be. She was afraid that she was in an untenable position because it was her fault. She was having the affair. He could hire the best lawyers, the toughest lawyers in Hong Kong and in the United States. She was afraid she'd be left with nothing. She might even lose the children. This must have been the mental process that uh, drove her to do what she did. And... Uh, what, why didn't he divorce her? Why didn't he begin the process? Well, he did. He actually did. He was in uh, the early stages of it. And in fact, the last weekend of his life, he had told colleagues of Merrill Lynch that he, this was the weekend he said that I'm going to have to break the news to Nancy. I'm going to tell her that I want a divorce. I'm telling her that I've already contacted the lawyers. I'm telling her that um, I'm, I'm getting this process underway things are finished, I've given up, I want out. He did tell her that, apparently. And apparently, that was what caused her to jump over the edge uh, to feed him a cocktail of four or five uh, sedatives that she had acquired over a period of weeks in Hong Kong. She put them in a milkshake. She had their six-year-old daughter deliver the milkshake to him and say, Daddy, here's a special milkshake. He drank it. And a couple of hours later, he passed out unconscious from the, from the effects of the drugs. And at that point, she killed him by hitting him repeatedly in the head with a heavy lead ornament that had once belonged to her grandmother. Tell us about the children. How old were they? The children at that time were, um, the oldest was nine, the second was six, and the, the third was four. Um, and they... Of course, when their mother was arrested, she she was, you know, she killed him, and then she she didn't know what to do with the body, frankly. And for the next three days, she kept the body in their bedroom with the door closed and told their maids not to clean the bedroom. Well, she went out and bought a carpet that she could bring home to wrap the body in. She wrapped the body in the carpet. She had workmen come and take it to a storage area in their apartment house, and at that point, apparently figured that she had gotten away with murder. Of course, she hadn't, because uh, Merrill Lynch had already filed a missing persons report. They were looking for this man. He had suddenly disappeared. It wasn't like him. And uh, it didn't take long for the Hong Kong police to figure out what had happened. Uh, her defense was that uh, 
it was self-defense, that he had been abusing her for years, uh, physically abusing her, uh, sexually abusing her. He was a cocaine addict. He was an alcoholic, a violent man. Uh, there is no independent evidence that ever corroborated this, but this was the defense she used at, at trial. And uh, the jury, it's an interesting thing, of course, the jury was made up entirely of the very Chinese people that she so despised and looked down upon. Right. The seven-person jury of, of, of Chinese citizens were the ones that pronounced her guilty, and she's now serving a life sentence without hope of parole uh, in a prison in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. What's happened to the children? They have come to the United States. They were the, they were the subjects of a, a custody dispute. They arrived in the United States... Uh, with a trust fund uh, that contained about $20 million in assets. Mm-hmm. At first, Brother Andrew uh, took custody of them and had them at his home in Greenwich, Connecticut, where they lived with him and his wife and his own two children. But Andrew was deteriorating rapidly, and uh, the situation became untenable. And Robert's sister, who lives uh, uh far from Greenwich. Uh, I don't want to tell you where she lives because I'm not doing anything that might uh, sure. violate the privacy of the children, but she filed uh, a suit in in uh, New York City in uh, surrogate court for, for custody of the children, and eventually, uh, after a number of legal proceedings, she was granted custody, and so the children are now with her and her husband, and uh, that's the best possible place for them. Uh, Robert's sister and her husband are really terrific people who, uh, if anyone can help bring these children out of these depths that they were plunged into, it would be her. Talk a little bit about how Andrew reacted to the death of his brother and to the discovery that his sister-in-law had killed him. Well, Andrew was horrified, of course, as as any brother would be, to hear the news that that Robert had been killed. Um, He knew, because they had spoken by telephone, that Robert was planning to file for divorce, that he was uh, going to get out of the marriage. And when Andrew found out that um, it was his sister-in-law who had done it, he wasn't terribly surprised because uh, his relations... This is a family where no one got along with anyone else. The family, the family gatherings and holidays uh, were described to me in considerable detail, and they're absolutely nightmarish. The worst holiday you've ever spent with your family or in-laws couldn't come close to what was standard practice for these people. So Andrew, um, you know, Andrew was caring almost entirely about Andrew. Andrew was a very narcissistic man, and his capacity for empathy, uh, I think, was quite limited. He was concerned uh, about, again, having more than he already had. And uh, anything that distracted him from uh, his pursuit of more wealth, more status, more material possessions was something that he just didn't uh, pay much attention to. So uh, Andrew had his four Ferraris and ultimately his 90-foot yacht and uh, these other things that happened to other people, such as his brother um, or his sister-in-law in prison, they didn't really affect him very much. He was totally self-absorbed concerned with trying to stay one step ahead of the FBI, which had been brought in to investigate his interstate bank fraud. And, of course, he he was arrested during Nancy's trial for the murder of Robert. Their father, Robert and Andrew's father, was in Hong Kong attending the trial when he got news that his other son 
had been arrested. Uh-huh. And it uh, wasn't too long after that, in fact, just less than a year after that, that Andrew was found murdered in the basement of his Greenwich, Connecticut home, and uh, no arrests have yet been made in that. For Andrew, it wasn't really about the game. It was really all about the money and the stuff, it seems. Yes, that was one big difference between the two brothers. For Robert, it was a very competitive thing. He had to be first, and by being first, he would also be making 20 or $30 million a year. But that was so, just a way of keeping score that, for him. Exactly, exactly, Jeff. That's exactly right, and that's the difference between them. For Andrew, it didn't matter what anybody else had as long as Andrew could always get more. He just wanted it all. He wanted everything that could be everything on earth that he could buy, he wanted to own. And it was a, a complete obsession, this uh, wealth to the exclusion of, of everything else in life. And it's, uh, it must have been a terrible way to live. Talk about Andrew's wife and how she perceived all of this. Andrew's wife is a very interesting person. Haley, uh, her name is Haley, H-A-Y-L-E-Y. Uh, she came from a very wealthy family. Um, this, this story reeks of money. Um, she, she, her father was even more wealthy than the Kissel father. But she uh, went to Ivy League college. She got a graduate degree in finance, and she was working for Merrill Lynch in New York as a stock analyst and, in fact, frequently appeared on MSNBC uh, talking about stocks in the leisure and entertainment mm-hmm. industry. She felt that Andrew had been grievously wounded by his upbringing, that, that the, father's, the father had really turned against Andrew and thought of him as the failed son. And she saw Andrew as a wounded man who she thought over a period of years she could help to heal. Uh, that never happened. Uh, she hung in with him for a long time, and uh, finally, at about the time of his arrest, she said that she'd, uh, she'd had enough, and she told Andrew that she was filing for divorce. In fact, she moved out of their home in Greenwich only two days before Andrew was murdered, which a lot of people in the Greenwich, Connecticut area, including the police, think was a very interesting coincidence. But that's as far as that has ever gone. Talk a little bit about the father and give us, give us some sense of him. Well, he was an unpleasant man. He is. I guess I could say he is. He's still alive. He's, uh, he's living, living in Florida, and uh, needless to say, he's not terribly happy about uh, the way I've portrayed him in the book. But um, everyone who knew him, either through business or socially or, or through family connection, they shared the opinion that he was a... Uh, uh, a mean-spirited, uh, selfish, demanding, and vindictive person who uh, would never allow any disagreement with any edict that he handed down. He was this, this sort of old-fashioned, tyrannical father who ran the family with the iron fist. Um, of course, now at the age of 79, uh, this is not how he sees himself. And as he reflects back on his, his, uh, the days of his child-rearing, that's not how he sees uh, the way he had raised the children, he feels, of course, that uh, you know he was a loving and devoted man. But nobody, nobody else does. Um, it's very strange. He talked to a hundred, two hundred people for the course of two years of working on a book like this, and normally you get opinions on one side of an issue or opinions that vary. With William Kissel, there was never any variation. It was a unanimous agreement that he 
was one of the nastiest people ever encountered. And how did Jane, the sister that you spoke of before, how does, how does she see all of this? Well, she was somewhat protected because she was the youngest. And because she was a girl, the father didn't have expectations for her. He didn't make the same kind of demands on her that he made on his sons. So she was somewhat insulated from, from the worst of growing up Kissel, which was a very difficult <laughs> thing for the boys to do. And as a result, uh, she's probably... The, the the normal person in all of this. She seems to have escaped from her childhood relatively unscathed. She's married to a, a, a wonderful man and she's very happily married and had two children of her own uh, before taking on Robert's three children. So now she's raising five of them. <laughs> and uh, I, my dealings with her, uh, I, every time I had an interaction with her, I came away more impressed. She's a uh, you know, if, if she didn't want to talk to me a lot about this because it was still just too painful for her. But if the story has a heroine, it would be the Kissel sister, Jane. What do we know and what do the police know about the murder of Andrew? Well, Andrew was about to be taken into federal custody. Um, Haley called a moving company and said she wanted the van to come to take all the furniture out of the house. She called, she wanted it done tomorrow. She wanted it done the next day. Oh, it took three vans. It was an enormous amount of stuff. And she left Andrew only uh, a single bed and uh, a table, enough for him to live in the house, the empty house, over the weekend. On Monday, he was to be taken into custody by federal marshals brought to court in White Plains, New York, where he would file his guilty plea and be sentenced on that day. So he told the movers to come back Monday morning at 9 o'clock and uh, get the remaining pieces of furniture. They arrived at the house. The gate was locked. Nobody opened the gate. Nobody answered the phone. They finally called Haley. They got the uh, code, the numbers to push to get through the security system. They opened the door to the house. They looked around. One of them went down to the basement, and there was Andrew, dead body, face down, T-shirt pulled over his head, it later emerged that he had been stabbed six times in the back. And that is all anybody knows. There have been no arrests. There have been, um, there was a, a houseboy, a Colombian houseboy that the police first looked at because Andrew, too, uh, Andrew was addicted to cocaine, and mm-hmm. they assumed that the Colombian houseboy was, was keeping Andrew uh, supplied with cocaine. And, you know, did he owe drug dealers money? Did they come to, uh, to, to punish him because he hadn't paid off his debts before he went to prison? He was in the olive oil importing business as well as real estate. He had partners in Sicily mm-hmm. who he apparently had cheated out of a large sum of money. And there, were, there was talk of this being possibly a mafia murder. But being stabbed in the back, is, it's a very unusual way to kill someone. It's, uh, it's not the mafia style. It, 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 being stabbed in the back will cause a slow and painful death. So uh, it, seems to, it seems that whoever it was who, who murdered Andrew or who, who ordered Andrew to be murdered was somebody who really hated him. Mm-hmm. This is a remarkable thing about the Kissel brothers, both of them. They could inspire great, great passionate hatred, especially in women because their attitude toward women uh, at best was unhealthy. Certainly the list of people that wanted to have killed Andrew was, is a long list, it seems. Yes, he had... Uh, nobody ever had dealings with Andrew who didn't come away 
feeling uh, badly treated and misused. And uh, the, the, Andrew was involved with a lot of money, and he moved a lot of money around, and a lot of people felt like they had their pockets picked. But, you know, he was alone in that house, and the security system was airtight, and it looks as if he would have had to know uh, whoever it was because he would have had to let them into the house. But I can't go beyond that because the Greenwich Police Department uh, in Connecticut hasn't gone beyond that. As I say, no arrests. Uh, they have a new chief in that town now. But that's not a town. It, it's sort of like a town, you know, in the northern Napa Valley there. Uh, they're not really equipped to deal with homicide. Okay. Uh, they say Greenwich is a, Greenwich is a, uh, a tough place because uh, if you, you'll get a ticket for water skiing after dark. But uh, for committing murder, it may be one of the easiest places in America to get away with it. And to what extent was Haley a suspect? She was never a suspect. Um, she was elsewhere when Andrew was killed. The police determined that right away. The only thing the police have said about her that's negative is at one point the chief had a press conference and said he wished that Haley would cooperate more fully. And her lawyer replied immediately that she had cooperated uh, to a considerable extent, and she was available to cooperate more. And uh, she certainly has talked to the police on more than one occasion, and they've never uh, they've never suggested that she was a suspect. Andrew's father, Bill, has told the press several times that he thinks Haley did it. He has accused her of murdering Andrew, but no one else has. Personally, or as a contract murder, she probably would not have done it herself. But, um, you know, Bill, Bill has a lot of theories, and it's probably not worth even giving airtime to them, <laughs> right. because uh, there's very little basis, in fact. After getting to know all these people, what do you think? I, I have no idea. I just don't know. And uh, there's a private detective who Robert had hired to uh, do surveillance on his wife, a man who's a former New York City homicide uh, detective, who runs a private security agency, does a lot of corporate security work. He actually had clients in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. uh, he was close to that investigation. And uh, the only thing he said to me from talking to the police who would talk to him more freely than they talked to me was that the Sicilian olive oil connection was something that could be further explored, but the Greenwich police just had no desire to go to Sicily and start kicking over uh, rocks of uh, with uh, Cosa Nostra involved. Besides Jane, as you spent uh, all the time you spent with this family, researching this story, writing this story, are there any other good people in this? I mean, one of the things that is that is remarkable about this story is, and you, you alluded to it a little while ago, is just how unpleasant they all are. You know, Haley, Andrew's wife, is not really an unpleasant person. She's very smart. She's very tough. She has a... Uh, a very quick and acute sense of humor. And what I really like most about her is she is a devoted mother. She, she's spending, she puts enormous energy into trying to raise her two children uh, in the best possible way. And when, when Robert and Nancy Kissel's children arrived at Haley's house when they first took custody of them, uh, those kids were totally a mess. They had been neglected for, for years, uh, you know, a, a paid nanny had been the only person who had ever had any serious contact with them. Those children didn't know how to brush their own teeth. Hmm. Uh, they had no concept of what table manners are. 
they had been plopped in front of a large screen television set with a remote control and fed junk food for five years. So Haley set about trying to, uh, you know, adjust them to the to the realities of life. And then because of the custody dispute, they were taken away from Haley. But uh, you know, I'd say that uh, of all the people in the story, um, she would be the one. Not well, also Robert's sister, of course. But right. uh, Haley would be the of the central characters. Haley would be the one who I would be very happy to have lunch with again. Did Robert know of of the illegal nature of so much of Andrew's activity? Yes, he had to, um, because Robert had a sharp eye for finance and for numbers. Haley has always said that she didn't know. Some people think that that's hard to believe, because she had a pretty sharp eye for numbers and finance. Haley and Robert were both financial professionals. Robert loaned Andrew $500,000 at one point, and uh, that money just disappeared. Uh, yeah, he had to know, but he had he had been in Hong Kong for for six years. He'd been away. He'd been on the other side of the world, and he was focused on making his own fortune and not paying a whole lot of attention to what Andrew was doing. The book is Never Enough. It's author Joe McGinnis, our guest this morning. It's just published by Simon & Schuster. Joe, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Well, I enjoyed it, Jeff. It's been very nice to talk to you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back.